Section ten of Members of the Family by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seven Where It Was Part two Miss Carey, she went home with her slate pencils ordered, and some candy Edmund's conscience was willing for him to recommend, and me and Edmund was left alone in the store. I wanted to say something about Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy's latest unpleasantness, and something about the way each one had sneaked in to ask Edmund not to josh the other one any more. And I had things to say about the bad chocolates, and about Edmund's plan of grubstaking the old junipers when they should start into the mountains for a winter's trappin'. I was full of conversation, but Edmund wasn't. He was loaded plumb to the gills with silence. I could tell that from his looks. I had come to know by hard experience that there were spells when Edmund not only didn't want to say a word himself, but didn't want you to either. And if you happened to say anything, don't care what, he'd fly at you. I said once it was going to rain, and just merely this started Edmund rounding me up for the inattentive way I had of letting my mind wander from my business. It did rain, too. So now I wondered for a while what he'd say when he felt like speaking once more. It was generally some very peculiar remark you couldn't foresee. Of course, Edmund was college-raised, but it wasn't no college-raising made him Edmund. I'd saw heaps of graduates and undergraduates, and they're just like other people when you come to know em. But I'd forgot wondering by the time Edmund did speak. He made me jump. I am the oldest man in this valley. That is what he said in the store long after dark with two lamps. He was making out an order to send to Seattle by the mail next day, a big order because it was likely to be the last lot of goods he could send for that year. Freight teams couldn't get into the valley after the heavy snow came. Well, I didn't say anything, for I wasn't full of conversation any more. Edmund, he stands back of his desk and shoves his spectacles up on his forehead, and his eyes was looking at me so you'd have thought I'd committed, well, most anything. Very much the oldest man in this valley, says Edmund, looking more serious, if possible. All right, says I. I will be twenty-five, says Edmund, next 14th of July. I'm going to bed. So he marched out with his lamp and left me in the store with all the shadows and things and the sound of the North Fork rapids under the bridge. One lamp made awful little light in that store. Do you think I laughed at Edmund then, like I so often did? Not a bit. I sat down on the counter and thought him over, and for the first time I expect I saw him clear, saw him alone in that valley unlike anybody or anything that was there or likely to come there and him with his college mates and all men and women who set store by him miles and miles and miles away in the east it made me feel old and lonesome myself and then throwing those chocolates into the river maybe he was the oldest man in the valley for jake and baldy had crossed the line into childhood but I laughed at him next morning. 
This Siwash had started down the valley with the mail, and no one had come to the store yet that early. It was dark. So Edmund had nothing to do, and he was weighing himself on the scales. I don't gain, says he, disgusted, not a pound in a year. You don't think the thoughts that make a man fat, says I. A hundred and forty, says he, and jumps down. Well, I did weigh a hundred and sixty, stripped, right along, and we was pretty near of a height. Maybe I had half an inch the better of him. But, I tells him for consolation, it's your great age. You'll be twenty-five next July, and I was only twenty-four last June. It was November we was in, you know. So I laughs. Yes, he says, you twenty-four. You stopped maturing at six. And he laughs, too. The Siwash was late coming back with the mail over the Chillowisp. Snow must have been three foot deep in the mountains, and it lay for quite a while in the valley. So we thought Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy had waited too late, and would lose their chance to get to their trappin'. They did lose it, too, but not exactly that way. But I'll come to that point when I get there. Snow drove school indoors. Miss Carey, she had to quit the tent, and sure enough it turned out like I told you. Edmund's sittin' room was filled up with Texan kids. Edmund's private room, which he had so nicely fixed up with all his college things, mugs and flags and ore, pictures of his friends, a whole heap of stuff. It had to be used for the school, being the only possible place, or school had to stop till spring come around and the tent could serve again. Well, Edmund wasn't willing to cut off the hope of the Empire of the Northwest for five whole months. Of course, they wasn't there Saturdays and Sundays, or at night, or at hours when he really needed his room. He was in the store during school times. But every day, after the kids had gone home, poor Edmund, he had to open all the windows of his pet room. He caught Miss Carey sweeping it of their leavings and scolded her savage for that insisted on sweeping it himself, would have his way. My sakes, but he was a cross man every day while he was sweeping. Then the kids, they bruck one or two of his souvenirs, touchin' and meddlin' with them, and Miss Carey was wild. Edmund didn't mind half as much. She spoke to me as we was taking a ride together one Sunday, when the snow had melted most off again. Guess it was early in December. She wanted her folks back in Orange, New Jersey, to buy new things and send them out. She was earnest about it. She was a nice-looking girl. I remember that ride. Tamaracks was all yellow and sheddin', making yellow patches on the snow with their needles, but the pines was that green that was black, a little ways off, and the wind smelt of em strong. I wanted particularly to replace the glass decanter, she says, but it only made him rude to me. I had to tell him it was a very strange thing that the only gentleman in the valley should be the one person who had been rude. Goodness to gracious, I shouts out, what did he say? That I was the only lady in the valley, and that explained it. Well, I says, he's never apologized as handsome as that to me. So we both laughs. But, she says, just before we got home, 
He ought not to tease those poor old men. Well, he's not done it lately. Not in my hearin', I says. It happened Edmund had done it. Couldn't keep his mouth shut about the schoolhouse question. It was the old men's duty, he claimed, to give their land for the schoolhouse. Edmund was awful about people's duty. He brung it up, though, in a new way. He thought he was making a joke. Hands out the pieces of the decanter to Jake and Baldy, and tells them they done that damage, and it was their business to make it good. So when they, who had never seen the decanter before, didn't make out what he was driving at, Edmund tells them they're the final cause. He explains how, if they'd given their land, the schoolhouse would have been built and no accidents would have occurred. Edmund meant that to be funny, but Jake and Baldy went off cursing him and the school and the whole valley, and wasn't a bit grateful for learning what a final cause is. But back they comes in a day or two, as usual, as if no words had passed, and they buy their truck to go trappin'. Takes em all day, but Edmund is wonderful patient. So they can't start that day. So they comes back next day to pack up and start. And it was then that Washington, D.C. comes up again. The Siwash was a day overdue with the mail, and some of the Texans was assembled at the store to see the mail arrive. They expected no letters, but it was something to do, and they always done it, assembled and stood around inside the store and out. Then today they had more to do, for there was Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy and their horses packing up their stuff. That gave everybody a chance to make remarks and be wise. They hardly noticed the mail when it did come about ten o'clock. They was so busy telling the old men the best way to do everything, best trap, best bait, best way to make a set, when Edmund, he begins to lecture. He comes out with a letter in his hand and holds it up. That's the subject of the lecture. Letter has come to the wrong Beekman. It was mailed at Portland, Oregon, and addressed to Beekman, Massachusetts. And it was come out of its way to Beekman, Washington, thereby losing a lot of time, of course. For it had went over the northern Pacific on its right way as far as Spokane, and then had come back through Coulee City away up here, and it would go to Beekman, Massachusetts, about two weeks late. It all comes, says Edmund, a having places of the same name. That ought to be against the law. He told us there was nine Beekmans. He took it to heart, heavy as usual. As the country grows and settles up, he says, they'll keep on naming places, Beekman. There'll be a hundred Beekmans before we're through. It ought to be a state's prison offense. In that case, says a Texas parent, you couldn't call this territory Washington. I guess this is a free country, says another. I guess, says another, the folks that live in a place has the right to call that place what they see fit. Poor Edmund, it wasn't no use him explaining the confusion it made. There's forty-eight places named Washington now, he says. I've looked it up. There ought to be just one, the capital of the United States. And the map is pitted with them like smallpox. Washington, D.C., Maryland, says Frisco Baldy, hauling in slack on the diamond hitch. Virginia, says Cultus Jake, on the other side of the pack. 
Edmund, he just give em both a witherin' look, and he whirls back into the store and gets to work at his desk. Wouldn't come out to tell the old men good-bye when they started off up the river, although he was grub-stakin' em for nothin'. They didn't know that, of course. Expected to pay him in furs when they come back in the spring. You'll not get very far today, says an onlooker to the departin' junipers. You're makin' a late start. Camp at early winter, one of em says. Early winter was a creek that come into the main stream about halfway to the Robinson cabin. Waka la li hayas kolasnas, says the siwash mail carrier. Oh, no, it ain't, says a Texan, lookin' the weather up and down. Well, I think maybe it will, says another, sweepin' his eyes around the sky, and maybe it won't. So that sets him discussin' the probabilities of a big snow, and if siwashes knowed about such things more'n white men did. They concluded siwashes was inferior to white men in every respect, and it wasn't going to snow. Good luck, one of em calls out. But Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy was by that time on the bridge over the North Fork and couldn't hear him. No more events took place that day. The kids finished their school and went home. Miss Carey, she went home. Edmund opened the windows and swept the floor. A few folks bought things during the day or came to buy and didn't, and some had letters to go out next day. There was always a little more hustle round mail-times. But a lonesome winter softness filled the valley and seemed to make you hear the stove plainer. The trunks of the trees kind of appeared more silent. Everything was quieter. I remember Edmund looked out of the door about sundown and said the siwash had been right, there was going to be a big snow. Even his voice sounded quieter in the clouded-over light and Edmund's voice was always deep, the voice of a man who was all man. Lying in bed that night, I never knowed the dark could be so still. Funny thing was, I heard the rapids under the bridge all of a sudden. Of course, they'd been going right on all the time. What makes you notice things and not notice em? It got very solemn, that room did, in the dark. Those old men was too old to go off into the mountains. Then I heard the little sound of the snowflakes around on the cabin. They must have started falling pretty late, for next morning it wasn't deep, not four inches yet, but it was keeping on. Old man Paragon come in about nine, and he says he had told everybody yesterday a storm was coming. As a matter of fact, he'd been one of the surest no storm was coming. It makes Edmund look sour at him. And by and by another prophet drops in, and he says he had offered to bet it would snow. And by eleven o'clock the fifth Texan had come along to sit around the stove, and he says, like every one of them had done before him, that anybody could have told it was going to snow. Oh, not one of them had ever doubted it for a minute. It gets too much for Edmund to bear and he pushes up his spectacles high on his forehead and looks at me mournful as anything. Last Fourth of July, says he to me, I said it was going to snow today. Old man Paragon, he starts laughing at that. He comes from New York State, and he could see a joke even when Edmund made it. 
but when you make that kind of a joke to a Texan, the kind of Texan that moves away from Texas, he says you're insultin' him. Around the stove they all looks dignified and spits without words. We could hear the rapids, and indoors the kids was singin' some kind of Christmas chorus Miss Carey was teachin' to em. Their voices came to us through a couple of shut doors. One of the Texans, as had been insulted by Edmund's joke, now asserts his self-respect by changing the subject. Washington, D.C., says he, is in Pennsylvania. Edmund, he sighs heavy and goes on posting up his ledger. Old man Paragon gives me a nudge. I wonder if Miss Carey would hold a night school, says he, and winks. The fellers around the stove, they spit some more. They was afraid. That's what was the matter. Plain it was there had been talk among em, riding away yesterday after Edmund's remarks. Maybe some of em knowed their geography correct at that point, but they didn't feel they knowed it correct enough to insist upon it in the presence of witnesses. Anyway, they drops it now, and after some further spittin', they changes the subject again. There'll be plenty snow at the Robinson cabin, says one. Plenty at early winter by now, another says. Oh, they'll get through, says a third. I wonder if they'll get my silver-gray fox, says old man Paragon. So the talk turns for a while on trappin', and dies down till the rapids was the only noise, and then a Texan got up and stretched himself, and said he'd be late for dinner, he guessed, if he didn't begin to think some about startin' home. So he began to think, I suppose, though it didn't show none on his face. Edmund kept a-writin' up his ledger. You could hear the rapids just as if they had come close up outside. And the snow was fallen and fallen. Old man Paragon holds up his hand. What's that, he says? So we all pricks up our ears. The snow had the valley pretty well muffled, but there did seem to be something. So a feller looks out, and he says it's somebody coming across the bridge. Hard to tell who it was for the snow. But next minute he got nearer, and it was Frisco Baldy, walking his horse turrible slow. My God, says somebody, something's happened. And we all crowds out. More horses on the bridge, says Paragon. We could all see em. It was pack-horses creepin' along. Behind em trailed a man ridin', and that was Cultus Jake. Then what has happened, somebody says. Baldy, he arrives first, snow on his hat two inches deep. He gets down and jumps some to shake off the snow, and then walks in through us and goes to the stove and takes a chair. Not a word said. Pack-horses, they arrives and stands around all over snow, stand sad and hang-dog, like they was guilty and had gave up denying it. Jake comes along a mile an hour, same as Baldy, and he gets down and jumps the snow off, and same as Baldy, he passes through us and goes to the stove. But he puts it between him and Baldy sits down and don't look at baldy so we all comes back in and sits down too except edmund he goes behind his desk and stands up there with his spectacles pushed high 
Well, he says. Baldy's lips moo, but nothing sounds. Well, Edmund repeats, was the trail snowed up? Anybody dead? Jake clears his throat, but that's all. Then Baldy manages to talk. No, he says, kind of croakin'. Trail wasn't snowed up. Not then it wasn't, says Jake. Nobody's dead. Up flares Edmund's temper. He swings a big hammer down on the counter with a bang, and he lets out one swear as thorough and bad as any western man. You'd been scared yourself if he'd aimed it at you. After all, Edmund had grub-staked him, though they didn't know it. The hammer and the oath dislodges Jake's voice. That man, says he, noddin' contemptuous across the stove at Baldy, that man claims it's in Maryland. I have explained to you that Edmund was an unexpected person in his ways. I looked for more hammer and more blasphemy. They had let Washington, D.C. break up their winter's trappin'. But Edmund, he slowly relaxes on the hammer, and he just stands and stands and keeps a-lookin' at him, merely interested, more and more interested. And they sits blinkin' at him, won't look at each other. Then a Texan speaks. I have said right along that it was in Pennsylvania. There's times when things get altogether beyond any daily feelings a man commonly has. I didn't want to lay down on the flour sacks this time, didn't want to laugh at all, and Edmund wasn't a bit mad. Even old man Paragon makes no symptoms except of further inquiry, and the Texans, of course, was merely anxious to have a point settled that some of em had been disputin' over. I wish you would tell me all about it, says Edmund. Violet ain't milder than he was. Well, that was exactly what they couldn't do, you see. When they first come in and saw how we was all anxious over watchin' em arrive, I expect it came home to em. I expect it shamed em. They took in, then, the way they and their actions would look in the valley, and talkin' came hard to em. But once they got started, they was soon screechin' each other as usual, and forgot appearances. They had got to early winter. They had camped at early winter, but on the way there the argument had come up. Must have growed pretty warm by bedtime, for it had lasted through their sleep, so they wasn't speakin' to each other at breakfast. You see, alone up there with the snow, there wasn't nothin' new to change the subject for em. It stayed right with em, and after breakfast it broke out worse than ever, Jake for Virginia and Baldy for Maryland and they had it all the time they was packin', givin' each other proofs where it was, and when they was ready to go they wouldn't live with each other any more, wouldn't camp, wouldn't trap, wouldn't speak, and so they had come home. So there they was, and there we was, and there it was. They'd simmered down again now, after tearin' loose and tellin' all about it. They was quiet. They sat with the stove between them and just blinked on and on. Snow fallin', rapid soundin', nothin' else during uh, must have been all of a minute, and it felt like ten. 
The strain got too severe for that Texan, and he spoke with the gentlest, anxionest voice, like a child pleadin' for something. Say, uh, ain't it in Pennsylvania? And outside in the snow, one of them horses gives a long, weary, hungry neigh. That horse breakin' in bust something inside of me and Paragon and Edmund. Edmund, he gives a kind of yoop. Paragon curls over on the counter, and I'd have laid right down on the sacks, only I wasn't near em, and so I leaned up against the shelves. Nobody else did nothing, because Jake and Baldy hadn't any heart left after seeing themselves in their true light, and the other Texans, they was being very careful now about their geography, they were saving it up. They wasn't giving any of it away, not even to charity. But after his yoop, Edmund pulls himself up, and he takes charge of the meetin', and when me and Paragon hears him beginnin' a speech, we comes to and listens. This is a great valley, says Edmund, behind his desk. It has song and story whipped to a finish. Then he fixes his big glum eyes on Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy. Don't think, says he, you'll draw me into your argument. But you hold the record. Wherever Washington is, it would have stayed there till spring. Your words haven't moved it anywhere else. But you have lost your winter over this. Couldn't you have waited and come home with your load of furs and been a success instead of a failure? For you can't turn around and go back into the mountains now. You'd never get halfway, and unless unusual weather follows this soon, the passes will be choked for the next three months. Edmund stops with that. It was fairly hard on the poor old blinkin' junipers, but you'll notice Edmund hadn't told him a word about the grub-stakin'. If everybody will come in here, he says, perhaps we can find some child to settle the question. He opens the door, and we all shambles in through after him to the schoolroom. Miss Carey, she rises from her chair, and of course she don't know what to make of it. Miss Carey, says Edmund, will some of your scholars kindly tell us what the capital of the United States is, and where it is. Miss Carey, she looks at the kids sitting round the table fixed for em. Gosh, you'd ought to have seen the hands fly up all over the room. Everybody may answer, says Miss Carey, and out they yells it. It was like the chorus they was practicing for Christmas. Oh, she had em trained. There was long breaths of relief drawn among the men standing sheepish by the door. Two or three regular sighs come out from that crowd. "'Thank you, Miss Carey,' says Edmund, "'and please excuse us for troubling you.' So he leads the way back into the store and goes behind his desk. If anybody expected him to make another speech, they was disappointed. Edmund looked cold and calm and just as unconcerned as though he'd been addin' sums or readin' a two-weeks-old newspaper. He starts writin' in his ledger. "'Well, I'll be late for dinner,' says the Texan. "'I told you where it was,' says another. 
One by one they shuffles out, Jake and Baldy mixed in with them, and they swings up onto their horses and slowly goes away, up the river and down the river and acrost the bridge, till you could see none of em no more through the fallen snow. And in the store was just Edmund writin', and me lookin' at him, and the sound of the rapids. Did Edmund talk then? That wouldn't have been Edmund. Nothin' was said in that store by him or me for, well, it must have been quite a while before the door opened, and Miss Carey, she pokes her head in and wants to know if she may be so bold as to inquire what all that meant in the schoolroom. The kids had gone home early for fear of the snow. So Edmund, he smiles perfectly peaceful and tells her about it. So, of course, she thinks it very comic, and she laughs hearty, but all of a sudden she remembers and expresses sympathy for Edmund's misplaced generosity. "'Don't let that trouble you,' says he, gay enough. "'I meant to grub-stake em, and I will. It shall not cost em a cent. Don't tell the poor old idiots.' So that was that. But the poor old idiots had something more to say. They had a thought. It snowed away all that night, a great big snow. But next morning it had quit, and there was promise of its turning into a fine large day. The kids had come to school pretty late, but they come. And then into the store walks Cultus Jake and Frisco Baldy. For a while they walks around and just inspects all the goods they knowed by heart anyway. Well says Edmund, and they looks at each other. Uh, could we step into the schoolroom just a minute, says Jake, then. Edmund, he looks surprised, but asks no questions, and in we all goes. Miss Carey, she gets up again. Any more information, says she, pleasant. Uh, no, says Jake. Uh, not today, says Baldy. We, says Jake, well, uh, we, uh, we'd, uh, Baldy gets restless, and he steps up. Put your schoolhouse on our land, says he. We want to give it to you, says Baldy. Coal and all, says Jake. There was a pink color went over Miss Carey's face, all over it, and she didn't say a word for a while. She looks quick at Edmund, and then she looks back at the two old men, and her eyes has tears in em. Folks ought to know geography, says Jake. We want the kids in this valley to know it, says Baldy. Knowledge will save em from mistakes, says Jake. And then, Miss Carey, she speaks at last. Thank you, she says. Is this potlatch? inquires Edmund Jokin. Cultus Potlatch, says both of em together. Would you think it? After that day I never heard em scrappin' together again. Maybe they did sometimes, but not in my hearin'. Their experience seemed to have changed em somehow. In the store I catch em lookin' to each other. Their eyes was gentle. I think, yes, I think they knowed that it was comin', that good-bye was on its way to them. The schoolhouse was built in the spring, 
and after the school got into it, now and again Jake and Baldy would sneak up to the door, look in, and take a back seat. And one of them would say he'd like to ask the kids a question, where was Washington, D.C.? And when the answer came, Jake and Baldy, they'd laugh like they'd split and sneak out again. One day in the store we heard the knockin' sound of a boat being rowed over the river, and Baldy came into the store alone. He walks to Edmund, but he looks down on the floor. Jake's sick, says he. Jake's sick. Oh, he knowed what it meant. There was no doctor in the valley, but what could a doctor do? In about three days we had Baldy sick, too. The tie between em was the tie of life, and Jake died of a Saturday, and Baldy died Monday. They must be buried by the schoolhouse, says Miss Carey, and everybody went. And then up comes the question what to put on the headboard. It brought up something none of us had thought of. Why, we don't even know their names, says Miss Carey, very soft. We didn't know anything. They had come into the valley. They had made the valley laugh. They were gone. That was all. Not a fact or a birthplace or anything to put over them that would tell who they had been. But Miss Carey wasn't going to let it be like that. She took it in charge, and she got it right. She found a bit of poetry, and she had the board painted, and it was this way. Jake and Baldy, our friends. Their heart was free from malice, and all their anger was excess of love. And then along in July, Edmund got married to Miss Carey. They was sure a happy, too. Are you still the oldest man in the valley? I asked Edmund one day in the store. About three and a half, says Edmund, solemn and deep. But then he laughs. Oh, yes, their happiness filled that store, filled the whole cabin, crowded it. Maybe that's why I left the valley. End of chapter 7, part 2